It's the Bits and Pieces Podcast, your monthly roundup of topical tidbits to put the bigger picture together. Hello and welcome to Bits and Pieces Podcast for May 2022. I'm Fiona McGregor and this month our collection of interesting clips includes a poem from Scotland to Ukraine, the Scottish Council elections, the cost of living rises, we've got Ofgem trying to explain away grid charges, Mary Black goes viral and more. But let's start with, which shouldn't be a political topic at all, the Scots language. And this month, Billy Kay addressed Holyrood Parliament in the Time for Reflection slot. Well, this certainly sent the unionists among us into some kind of tailspin. Apparently, having the temerity to even admit to having a Scots language was way beyond the pale for them. But to the rest of us, let's just enjoy a beautiful, lyrical and uplifting address to Holyrood from Billy Kay. Thank you, presiding officer, for giving me this honour of addressing the National Parliament. I'd like to start with a Ken Speckle quote for Hugh McDermott, one of the skilliest markers in Scots literature's thousand-year history. To be yourselves and to make that worth being, no harder job to mortals has been given. It's maybe even harder for MSPs, for you can't just be yourself for yourselves, but for all the selves, all the souls, all the brother and sister Scots, the maiden Kirk, the Johnny Groves, and a yaunt that you represent. Among Wilk, there's our one and a half million Scots speakers. News the day and news the hour. To rack suit and bring their words, scrive it in the walls outside of the Parliament, into the heart of this chomer. Words perfect for debate, like spear, inquire, threep, Assert, jalouse, suspect, tack tent, take care, or it's tint, it's lost. Or, when you don't want to be douce, you can hear flighting, for it's a lead hoaching with gleg insults. Glake it, gawk it, gawk. In Dane you'll raise the international profile of this heart with words for fremit leads that touch us home. French suffice. Dutch hunkers, Scandinavian lugs, and Latin dispone. You'll be howking as wheel for a gowden seam in your own party's histories. McDermott was a founding father of the National Party. Fellow Macker, Cunningham Graham, and his friend Keir Hardy, the Labour Party. The chill who first defined our democratic intellect was the Conservative Walter Elliott. The liberal Gladstone was originally Gled Stain, Gled being Scots for the bird of prey, the kite, Gledstone, and the Greens. The Greens are thrilled to our eye-biding land, where Scots words like smir, calor, har, or gloamin seem to arise out the yard itself and hod our hearts. But, more important than thone, You'll give a signal to the wains in the skill that the culture of their home is valued by folk elected by their mothers and fathers. Bairns, like the quiet wee lass in primary twa in Falkirk, were ran and louped into her teacher's arms, laughing and greeting with joy when she first heard 
her mother tongue in class. Or the sweet learners in Dundee, doer teenage boys, will go to the top of the class for the very first time when the language they used, al come into the skill in books that they then devoured and never look it back. Scottish wanes transformed learning a Scottish lead. A nation where nobody's excluded and nobody kens that they belong. Surely, dear members of the Scottish Parliament, those will worth being yourself for. Thank you. And if that little taster of Scots Lead has left you interested to find out more, one of our indie jigsaw shows was on the topic of Scots Lead, and we spoke to four different Scots speakers from the world of books and illustration, singer songwriter, poetry, and even computer games design, all championing the language in their different ways. I'll put the link to that in the notes under the show, or you can get it from our podcast website, which is podcasts.com independencelive.net. And continuing with the theme of the beauty and power of language, the Scottish macker Kathleen Jamie created a heart-wrenching poem in the form of a letter from Scotland to Ukraine. Here she recites it and it's also translated into Ukrainian as she goes along. It's an absolutely beautiful piece. If you want to see her performing this, just search for it on YouTube. There's a, a lovely clip of her. It's called Our Waking Breath. Це поема лист від шотландців до українців. Our waking breath, a poem letter from Scotland to Ukraine. Dear people of Ukraine, from the calm and stillness of a Scottish morning, as life becomes uncertain and strange, we send you our waking breath. We are here sending you strength carried on the west wind, sending mother love from the green surge of the tree to leaf. Love, like the miracle of a newborn babe. We share your hurt sayers, the same dool, as we hold tight the chubby wee hands of our grandbairns. Like you, we love birdsong, yellow sunflowers, the dreaming blue sky, sunbeams, moonlight and stars, disco music, dancing to the blasting tunes, football fixtures, Dragons foraging for gems in our favourite books. The crows at dusk who rise, caw and caw, making music together. A sky, a path, freedom. Серед цієї пітьми ви сміливці. Серед скорботи цієї ми знаємо. Піднімуться ваші обличчя. Серед страху цього ми знаємо. Жовта пшениця достигне під синім небом. Ми поруч, коли ви цілуєте на прощання дружину і дітей, бо треба прощатись. Коли ви гладите на останок перелякану кішку з пантеличеного пса. Ми знаємо, ви просто хочете дихати серед листя і квітів на вухристій землі, між лісів соснових. Ми поруч, під тим самим небом, Під тими самими зорями, тож просимо, пам'ятайте, наша вулиця ваша. Ми любитимемо сусідів своїх, як самих себе. 
Ми простягнемо руку, прихистимо серед лихоліття, будемо поруч, щороку, наші доми і серця відкриті. Пам'ятаймо слова Шевченка і Бернца. Подайте же руку, як колись, бо дружба нам свята. Поховайте та вставайте, кайдани порвіте. Dear people of Ukraine, may your sunflower seeds blossom into life, tall and unshakable, for the wee ones, the youngins, the bairns. May they come again, quiet evenings, tea, lazy chatter, love. May the faces of sunflowers find the light, because there is hope even in darkness. For now, the world watches as iron birds scatter the seed of their hatred. The world watches you, bonnie fechters. Your resistance and defiance is your future. Spring is here. Dear people of Ukraine, your courage humbles us. Hod fast, hod fast, and send him homeward to think again. At the beginning of the month, we had our Scottish Council elections. Partygate, amongst other Tory Westminster scandals, we were expecting the Tories to get a bit of a kicking. But even so, I doubt that First Minister Nicola Sturgeon could believe her luck when she was given this open goal of a question from Douglas Ross. First Minister. Well, of course, uh, BIFAB is also uh, still uh, open um, and employing people. Uh, A&E challenges for A&E services uh, across uh, the whole of the UK, Europe, uh, the world, but A&E services in Scotland, the best performing of all of the four nations in the UK for six years. Uh, in terms of crime, recorded crime at one of the lowest levels since 1974, uh, down 41% since this government took uh, office. Uh, over the long term, we've seen a reduction in police-recorded non-sexual violent crime of 36% uh, since this government took office. Homicide cases at their lowest level since comparable records began back in 1976. Uh, and uh, those who experience uh, crime down and lower uh, than in other parts of the UK. Uh, education, a thousand school building projects completed since this government took office. When we took office, only 61% of schools were in good or satisfactory condition. That's over 90% today. We've got lower council tax uh, than people in other parts of the UK, lower income tax for the majority, free prescriptions, free personal and nursing care has been extended. We've got the Scottish child payment. We've got new benefits, the carers allowance supplement. Young Carers Grant, the Baby Box, Early Years Education and Child Care trebled since the Government took office, doubled in my time as First Minister. More staff working in our NHS than in any other part of the UK, more GPs per head of population. I can go on if Douglas Ross wants me to do. 100,000 affordable homes and yet, yes, crime rates down. What we had in 12 years of Tory government at Westminster, we've had Brexit, we've austerity, we've seen poverty increasing, we've had pension cuts, we've had tax increases and worst of all, we've had Boris Johnson. And the following day, Scottish voters went to the council elections and voted. SNP and the Greens did better than they've ever done before. 
Tories slipped to third place behind Labour. So that was the verdict of the Scottish people on the government's performance. Here are a few clips as the results started to come in. Ask you, how concerned are you about Labour's gains? Because um, there wasn't an, uh, a total uh, gravitational pull towards the SNP by voters, for voters. Many went to Labour, Labour regaining the, second, the spot as the second largest party in Scotland now. Why do you think those voters went there and not to the SNP? Well, the party that had the biggest increased seats and the biggest increase in its vote was the SNP. What we saw further down the batting order, if you like, is that Labour have replaced the Tories in second place. It's like two bald men fighting over a, a comb, if I may say so. And actually, this is Labour's second worst result in local authority elections in Scotland over the course of the, the last 50 years. So I, mean, I congratulate them on picking up the seats that they've done. But in essence, this is just a reflection on what is the collapse of the Tory vote. Tories who are predicting heavy losses. I've been looking at comments from people who have been uh, defeated, who have said Partygate certainly was an issue. It, it doesn't look necessarily like voters are shifting to other parties. They're staying at home this time. But again, we've got to wait and see what happens here in Scotland. Do you seriously think you can be First Minister? Yes. I'm thrilled and very proud of the SNP's performance. We've won the election, uh, not marginally, not by the skin of our teeth. We have won the election overwhelmingly, leaving our opponents scrapping it out for second place. But more than that, we've increased our vote share, we've increased the number of councillors elected. We're the largest party in more councils now than we were before the election. We are the majority administration now in the city of Dundee. You know, that would be an outstanding result for any party in any circumstances. But for the SNP, 15 years into government, it's a massive endorsement and a massive vote of confidence in the SNP nationally and locally. So I'm thrilled and all credit to councillors, activists, supporters across the country. Thank you. Right, thank you. A special thank you to young people as well. That last speech was from Rosa Salee, came to Scotland as a refugee and has now been elected to serve in Glasgow Council. Over in Northern Ireland, the results of their elections were proving to be quite historic. The 2022 Stormont elections will be historic. They already are historic. Why is that? Well, because of, as you can see here, they're still counting the votes, but we do have the first preference shares, and you can see this. Sinn Féin, a nationalist party, has topped the poll. That has never happened before in the 101-year history of Northern Ireland's existence. Northern Ireland was literally designed, its borders were designed so that that wouldn't happen, so that there would be an inbuilt unionist majority. And indeed, if you top up the unionist parties, they're still on top. If you put the DUP together, and you put the UUP together, and you put the TUV uh, together, a relatively new party, they still have a plurality of the vote, but the fact that you have a nationalist party coming top really does transform the political landscape in Northern Ireland, not least because, theoretically, if there is going to be an executive, Sinn Féin will have the right to nominate a First Minister. And just take another step back and consider that both in the Republic, where Sinn Féin is polling at the very top of the uh, Irish polls, may fancy uh, the chance of uh, nominating the next Taoiseach. If there is going to be a First Minister in Northern Ireland, it would also be Sinn Féin. The fact that Sinn Féin is in such rude health across the island of Ireland really does change things. And indeed, if you look at uh, the United Kingdom as a whole, you have the SNP, a national pa nationalist party, at the top of the poll in Scotland, and now Sinn Féin. Then he 
any push for, for a, a referendum on that would have to we have to get the the okay of the Westminster government. And, and realistically, do you think that's ever going to happen? Given what what's happened with Scotland and, and their independence referendum, it was seen as a catastrophe for the well, Westminster government. Well, just bear in mind that the right to referendums on Irish unity uh, are already agreed. They are agreed and they are contained in an international uh, agreement. So it's not a matter of negotiation or debate between Dublin and London. This matter has been concluded. Um, and so we believe that the preparation for that big change needs to happen now. And look, we want this to happen in a way that is orderly, that is planned, that is democratic and that is peaceful. And I believe, we believe that that will be the case, that that's what we're facing into over the next number of years. Certainly in this decade, we will have those referendums. And I have to say, if it is the thing, and it, it, it is a, a likelihood, although not a certainty at this point, that Michelle O'Neill uh, emerges as the First Minister, she will lead in a way that is thoughtful and inclusive and progressive. And we're very clear as Republicans, as Irish nationalists, as people who believe in Irish freedom and unity, that we have an onus and a duty to bring others with us. And we're, we're up for that task and for but that how challenge. When you looked at the polls in advance of this election, um, as to where the protocol ranked for unionist voters, then it, it, it wasn't in, in the top the top issues. The top issues, not surprisingly, were cost of living and health um, and building an economy where we could provide jobs. So I think whilst political unionism, um, certain strands of political unionism, have, I think, very much attached and wrapped themselves around the protocol issue, the reality here is that our business community, even if you leave party uh, politics out of it, our business community, our manufacturing community, our retail community, all want the stability of the protocol being implemented. They recognise the enormous potential that the protocol provides us here, mm -hmm. whilst also protecting our, our Good Friday Agreement. So I think to introduce the language of it lacks cross-community consent, I, I think is misleading. Uh, because if you want to take that approach, Brexit didn't have cross-community support here in the North. Today represents a very significant moment of change. It's a defining moment for our politics and for our people. Today ushers in a new era, which I believe presents us all with an opportunity to reimagine relationships in this society on the basis of fairness, on the basis of equality, and on the basis of social justice. Irrespective of religious, political, or social backgrounds, my commitment is to make politics work. My commitment is to work through partnership, not division. We will work with those who serve um, all other political perspectives. We will work together. We will show respect and we expect to be shown respect. There is a space in this place for everyone, all of us together. I will provide leadership which is inclusive, which celebrates diversity, which guarantees rights and equality for those who have been excluded, discriminated against or ignored in the past. We all heard loud and clear on the doors throughout this campaign. People demand cooperation. People demand delivery. They demand that we address the cost of living crisis, that we invest in our health service. And the welfare of people, all people, comes first. And that's the reason why on Monday we must all turn up together. That's the reason why on Monday there is an urgency to restore an executive, to start to put money back in people's pockets, to start to fix the health service. The people can't wait. We will turn up. I will lead my team up to Stormont on Monday. 
The people have told us throughout the course of this election that they expect us to work together. The people are right. So you've just heard there Michelle O'Neill of Sinn Féin, her victory speech, if you like, and before that Mary Lou Macdonald, who was asked immediately, of course, about the possibility of Irish reunification. Now, some three weeks after that historic win, the situation with the power-sharing agreement at Stormont in Northern Ireland is still not resolved, with the DUP refusing to take part. It's hard to see exactly how it's going to pan out in the next little while, but very, very interesting to be watching from Scotland. It really does feel as if the UK is starting to really come apart at the seams. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. The rapidly rising cost of living crisis has been a factor in all of the elections that took place this month. So let's head over to Westminster and have a listen to a portion of Ian Blackford's speech in response to the Queen's speech and what was contained or rather not contained within it. It is frequently the case that when Ian Blackford rises to speak, the Tory benches empty. It's incredibly bad-mannered and obviously deliberate. But the the absolute outpouring of people leaving as he began his speech, he had to sit down again to allow the hall to clear. It really is just appalling bad manners. If you want to see it, there's a clip of it in our YouTube channel, Indie Live Extra. However, he makes up for it once he gets going. But of course, I thought it was interesting that the, the Honourable Member told us that the recent difficulties that the Prime Minister has had with the the Metropolitan Police, they are, they are not new. He's had his collar felt in the, in the past as well. And let me, let me also thank the, uh, the seconder of the, the motion from Brecken and Radnanshire. Um, I, I think really what we had was a, was a job application for, for, for government from the, uh, the member, and I'm, I'm sure she'll have a, a long and fruitful career in front of her as a, a member of this House and a member of the, the governing party. Uh, Mr Speaker, as much as I hate to rub salt into wounds, This Queen's speech has one very obvious backdrop that deserves mention, and that's the democratic drubbing the Prime Minister and his party got last Thursday. And I know that they might want to hide from that reality, but the message from people right across these islands was crystal clear. The people made clear that this is now a Prime Minister facing his final days in office and a Tory government that it's on its last legs. And I'm proud to say, Mr Speaker, that Scotland sent the strongest message of all. Now, I understand this might be a wee bit uncomfortable listening for the opposite benches, but they need to hear it all the same. Because they need to hear what Scottish democracy is telling them, and has been telling them for years. Last Thursday, Mr Speaker, saw the best ever result for pro-independence parties in the local elections. The Scottish National Party is the largest party in the largest number of councils, the greatest ever result in a local election in our party's interest. This is, Mr Speaker, the 11th election victory in a row for the SNP, and it's the eighth election in a row that the SNP has won under the leadership of Nicola Sturgeon. Mr Speaker, a party in government winning more votes and winning more seats. Can you imagine that, Prime Minister? No, I can't. So, that's what we did. What about the Conservatives? Down by 100,000 votes, and they lost 66 seats in Scotland. And the worst news for all of them is, after all of that, 
they still kept their leader. So, <laughs> democracy has spoken in Scotland. It's spoken before, and it will speak again and again. Yeah. And all our democratic decisions are saying exactly the same thing. Yeah. Scotland rejects this Westminster government. We reject the Tory party, and we are demanding, demanding the choice of an independent future. Yeah. Because the Scottish people know the cost of living with Westminster. We know the price we pay with the Prime Minister and the price of being stuck with a Tory government we didn't vote for. And it's a price none of us in Scotland, not one of us, can afford to pay any longer. And later in the same debate, Joanna Cherry made some excellent points responding to a Tory MP who thinks everything would be fine if only people could learn to cook. Well, what I will say uh, to the previous speaker is that all of us have food banks in our constituency. We don't really need to visit his because we're perfectly well aware of the requirement for them. But the requirement for them is not because people don't know how to cook. It's because we have poverty in this country at a scale that should shame his government. Now, before I address the substance of today's debate, Mr Deputy Speaker, and in particular the government's plans for a British Bill of Rights, like others, I'd like to refer to results, the results of the local elections last week. Um, because in Scotland they were a very important reminder that this British government has no mandate in Scotland and no, ba- no mandate for any of the policies it's seeking to impose on Scotland in the programme for government. And it's really no surprise, Mr Deputy Speaker, that the Conservatives lost so many votes and have been reduced to third place in Scotland. When I was campaigning on the doorsteps of Edinburgh South West, I heard over and over again the contempt in which this UK government is held. And it's not just the endemic law-breaking, it's the rank lack of respect for the frequently expressed views of the Scottish electorate for a different way of doing things and for a second independence referendum, given the broken promises of the first. And, Mr Deputy Speaker, I'm particularly proud that in my own constituency of Edinburgh South West, in the Pentlands Hill Ward, my colleague and friend Fiona Glasgow displaced a Tory councillor to win yet another seat for the SNP on the City of Edinburgh Council. And I'd like to take this opportunity to congratulate her for the fantastic campaign that she run. It's always good, Mr Deputy Speaker, to see women of independent mind elected to public office. Now, it was suggested by the leader of Her Majesty's opposition yesterday that this Queen's speech has no guiding principle. And he's right, insofar as it abjectly fails to make meaningful proposals for reversing the cost of living crisis. And that cost of living crisis is really hammering my constituents as well as constituents across the United Kingdom. There's nothing in this speech about cutting VAT on fuel bills. There's nothing about taxing big companies, not just the energy companies, but other companies with excess profits. There's nothing to increase benefits, and there's nothing to reinstate the £20 that was cut from universal credit. Instead, I heard on the radio this morning that the Cabinet met yesterday to chuck around ideas to deal with the cost of living crisis, but didn't come to any conclusions. Mr Deputy Speaker, the lack of urgency and the lack of focus of this government is as insulting to my constituents as it is callous. Meanwhile, back at Holyrood, the Net Zero Energy and Transport Committee was taking evidence from two members of Ofgem, which is the electricity and gas market regulator. Unsurprisingly, the issue of excessive grid charges from Scotland were raised and the Ofgem guys attempted to give an answer. They didn't answer the question because they they just don't seem to understand it. It was a very interesting insight into how their minds work and 
any concept of Scotland as a, a separate entity. It just completely eludes them, which kind of explains part of the issue, although it certainly doesn't excuse it. Fiona Hislop asks the questions. In Scotland, you know that we have an extensive um, range of renewable assets and generation, and we export um, much of our renewable uh, electricity. But your regime is tailored to the United Kingdom market as a whole, and clearly there are inhibitors in, in Scotland for that expansion to net zero uh, energy production, not least the exorbitant transmission co costs. And there's a danger that even under the new regimes that might be coming, the, the subsidy goes to the consumer um, where the, the consumer base is rather than the generation of energy. So what can be done to ensure that Scotland can con contribute to net zero by powering ahead with renewables um, and what might have to happen in a UK market regime to enable that to happen? And, and what changes would you see, not least in transition charges? The commitment that we make uh, is to try and get this net zero transition happening at least cost to consumers. And we try and establish the rules and the incentives um, to ensure that there is a, a low cost system overall. And the transmission charges are set up in that way. So they're, they're meant to incentivise new generation in the locations closest to the, the, the main centres of, of demand. So that's why these, these transmission charges vary in different parts of the country. Now, of course, there, there, are, uh, there are ways in which we are helping facilitate new infrastructure investment to enable the growing level of renewable, and of, obviously the potential for more renewable power in Scotland is, is vast. Um, and so the, uh, the system operator, the grid, is developing new network plans and those strategic plans will, will help facilitate more transmission capacity to get that low carbon power from Scotland down to England when there's a surplus uh, north of the border. And I think that sort of that long term structure is, is really important to make sure that increased capacity is built and then you get a, an efficient system across GB. But do you acknowledge that those grid plans still penalise Scotland and that we have people living in fuel poverty in the uh, part of uh, the United Kingdom that generates the most uh, energy in terms of renewable energy, but also in, in terms of oil and gas? Is that not something that you know, uh, is wrong? So fuel poverty, of course, is a problem across GB. And, and uh, as, as my colleague has been saying, what we try and do is establish a least cost system, but we don't have the ability to, to introduce new subsidies. Uh, so for us, it's about the fair prices across, across the, whole of, uh, the whole of GP. So that was quite telling, wasn't it? The subsidy is set to incentivise new production nearest the most customers. So the southeast of England, where all the customers are, they want to subsidise producing energy there. But the fact is that renewable energy, the wind power infrastructure, is up in Scotland, in and around Scotland, as it was with the oil and much of the gas. As I say, an interesting glimpse into the, the colonial mindset that sees all these assets as theirs. The following meeting of the same committee the witness this time was UK Government Minister Greg Hands, and he spent the hours meeting pretty much saying no. But he let slip a couple of very interesting points. The first was this one. Uh, oil and gas companies already pay corporation tax at twice the rate of other companies. Uh, they paid around £375 billion pounds in taxation um, to the extractor um, since uh, North Sea oil and gas uh, came on stream. 
Did you catch that? 375 billion from oil companies to the UK exchequer. That could have been our oil fund. And now we've established who benefits from the tax. Let's find out who's responsible for the poverty, shall we? Uh, now one uh, example that's been brought to this committee um, from Scottish Power was the establishment of a deficit fund that wouldn't give people a £200 loan on their, on their electricity bill. It would give them a £1,000 grant to enable them to get out of fuel poverty and to wipe out their debts. Are you considering uh, initiatives like that? Uh, what, what are you considering may need to be done in the autumn if we're going to continue to see people uh, spiralling into fuel poverty, spiralling in, into debt? Oh, well, thank you, Mr. Ruskell. And, and first thing, uh, I, I, I'll just stress that fuel poverty is devolved. Um, so uh, I'm assuming you'll be making the same point. Um, I think your party, if I'm not mistaken, is now in government. So I'm assuming you'll make that same point to your Scottish Green uh, ministers uh, as well. So did you get that? The UK government exchequer gets the tax in and fuel poverty is devolved. And there's yet another reason why we need out of this union. And then there was another revealing little statement. Can I ask you, why do you have an ideological opposition to a windfall tax? Because across Europe, we're seeing uh, the European Union's plan to reduce reliance on oil and gas, um, favouring a windfall tax. We're seeing Italy introduce a windfall tax, increasing it to 25% raising 10 billion euros. We're seeing Spain introduce a windfall tax as well. Surely as a, as a short-term emergency measure, uh, a windfall tax would help to boost the kind of programmes that you and I know are needed across the UK to get families into a position where they're coming out of fuel poverty. Uh, and, and clearly something which would not be resisted by oil and gas majors who are making billions and billions of pounds. Um, can you, can you tell me why it is that windfall tax is currently off the table? What would have to change in the state of the energy crisis at the moment for you to reconsider the introduction of a windfall tax? Well, uh, thank you, uh, uh, Ms. Ruskell. I mean, we sort of went into this a little bit earlier with uh, Ms. Lennon, but um, I'll, I'll be clear that the, the Chancellor has been clear not to follow um, the Labour Party's suggestion here of a windfall tax, which I think is also backed by the, the SNP, if I'm not mistaken, although I think their windfall tax might be slightly different, and then your windfall tax may also be slightly different in turn. Um, but what we have said is this, that oil and gas companies pay corporation tax at twice the rates of other companies. They are paying, there's a big increase in the amount of tax that we are taking from those companies uh, this year already. So that's why there's no windfall tax, because the, the UK government is making too much money already in tax from the oil companies who are making massive profits, paid for by the consumer. Back in Westminster, Marie Black made one of those fantastic speeches where she calls a spade a spade and does it with such passion and articulacy that it instantly becomes a viral hit. You may well have heard this before because it's everywhere right now, but it's going in this podcast because I want to be able to find it again if I want to listen again. Mari Black. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. Now, for a party that prides itself on the economy, the Tories have a shocking record of running it. 
Yeah. Our economy has the slowest growth in the G7. We have got greater regional inequality than almost any other developed nation. Food banks now do the job of government in providing for families, families that are more often than not in work. Government could start solving this crisis by providing solutions like closing uh, tax avoidance loopholes or creating a windfall tax for energy companies. But instead, we get endless bills paying lip service to a manufactured culture war. The priority isn't the economy. It seems to be things like protecting freedom of speech and yet... The Tories are the ones that have banned schools in England from using sources that are not overtly pro-capitalist. Yeah. They're cracking down on freedom of assembly and protest. They're privatising Channel 4 when the Culture Secretary didn't even know that Channel 4 receives no public money. So the argument isn't financial. And as the member for Rhonda uh, touched upon earlier on, when we consider that the Culture Secretary was a key focus of a Channel 4 documentary once about the influence that Christian <coughs> fundamentalism has over UK politics, yeah, it becomes yeah. even more concerning that this decision is political and it's personal, it is not professional. But most terrifying of all, Madam Deputy, is that this government literally want to get rid of the Human Rights Act. And that begs the question, for who do they think rights have gone too far? Mm. Do you know how scary it is to sit at home and wonder if it's you? Is it your rights that are up for grabs? We've witnessed Windrush. We've, our economic strategy is to open our doors to the rest of the world when we need their hard work and then chuck them out 50 years later without yep. a word's yeah, notice. Yeah. We tell our own citizens that their safety can't be guaranteed in Rwanda, but we're perfectly happy to ship asylum seekers, people fleeing war and persecution over to Rwanda, as though they're cattle to be dealt with by someone else. Mm -hmm. And despite knowing that this plan costs more than it'll ever save, this is just little England elites drunk on the memory of a British empire that no longer exists. Yeah. We have the lowest pensions in Europe, the lowest sick pay. We pretend minimum wage is a living wage mm -hmm. when it's not. We miss our own economic targets time and time again. We're happy to break international law. We are turning into a country where words hold no value. And over the last 12 years, I fear we are sleepwalking closer and closer to the F word. And I know everyone is scared to say it for fear of sounding over the top or being accused of going too far. But I say this with all sincerity. When I say the F word, I'm talking about fascism. Fascism wrapped in red, white and blue. And you may mock and you may disagree, but fascism does not come in with intentional evil plans or the introduction of leather jackboots. It doesn't happen like that. It happens subtly. It happens when we see that governments making decisions based on self-preservation, based on cronyism, based on anything that will keep them in power. We see the concentration of power whilst avoiding any of the scrutiny or responsibility that comes with that power. It arrives under the guise of respectability and pride mm. that will then be refused to anyone who is deemed different. 
It arrives through the othering of people, the normalisation of human cruelty. Now, I don't know how far down that road we are, Madam Deputy Speaker. Time will tell, but the things we do in the name of economic growth, the warning signs are there for everyone else to see, whether they admit it or not. Powerful stuff from Mary Black there, as always. Even though we've seen so much callousness, cronyism, incompetence, self-preservation from the Westminster government, it is hard even now to think that they really are sliding towards fascism. But the evidence is there. In England, the restrictions on the right of public protest, Priti Patel trying to argue that peaceful protest or demonstrations are in some way mob rule. But the even more terrifying one is the proposal to rip up the Human Rights Act and replace it with some kind of Bill of Rights that's watered down so that really Westminster can choose who gets rights and who doesn't. Coupled with the other horrifying piece of legislation, that of removing asylum seekers to Rwanda, the term fascism really is no longer sounding too extreme. Back to Joanna Cherry, who was doing what she does best and cross-examining a minister, a hapless minister, who had obviously been sent in there with three lines, and that was all he was empowered to respond to questions with, and he used them all repeatedly. This is the first half of Joanna's cross-examination. If you want to see the full clip of this, it is on our Indie Live Extra YouTube channel. Good morning, Minister. Um, The US State Department, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have all reported evidence in 2020-21 of unlawful or arbitrary killings, forced disappearances and torture committed by the Rwandan government. Do you accept the evidence that these acts have been committed by the Rwandan government? The point that I would make is that overall, um, Rwanda is a safe and secure country um, for the resettlement of individuals. Um, I think it is noteworthy that um, Rwanda is committed to um, the convention. I think it is noteworthy that, for example, the UNHCR, through the transit mechanism, have been working with the Rwandan government to place um, refugees in Rwanda. Um, I think you yourself would recognise the expertise um, that the UNHCR has in these matters. Um, And I think it's key to just point out that, of course, through the CPIT report, it is a comprehensive um, report, um, there is no systematic breaches of human rights obligations. Well, that doesn't really answer my question. My question was, do you accept the evidence set out by the US State Department, one of our major allies, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, both very internationally respected NGOs, do you accept the evidence that there have been unlawful or arbitrary killings in Rwanda, forced disappearances and torture committed by the Rwandan government? Do you or do you not accept that evidence? We have been very clear through the CPIT report in setting out various concerns that have been raised um, internationally around those sorts of issues. But I go back to the point that fundamentally we do not believe that there are systematic breaches um, of human rights um, in a way that would mean that this policy would be inappropriate. How have you reached that view? I mean, what assessment have you made that leads you to believe that um, Mm -hmm. uh, asylum seekers who have removed to Rwanda will not face the potential of human rights breaches. What work have you done to counter the evidence that come from uh, the US State Department and the other organisations that I mentioned? 
What I can tell you is that I know that the work of the country teams in drawing up this sort of guidance is considered to be authoritative by the courts and thoroughly professional and high quality. Um, that report is clear that there is no systematic, systemic breach. Um, and I'm content that that work has been carried out thoroughly and appropriately. And I again make the point that, for example, the UNHCR, um, who you yourself have regularly cited as being authoritative on these matters, place um, refugees in Rwanda through the transit mechanism, which I think um, demonstrates that there is a broad consensus around that finding in the report. You're very focused on saying that there's no systemic evidence, but my specific question to you was whether you recognise the evidence set out by the US State Department, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, and whether you've carried out yourself any assessment to satisfy yourselves that there aren't human rights breaches in Rwanda. So I am satisfied overall, okay. and I think that it's right that that CPIT report is candid, that does set out... Um, various instances that have been raised in international fora and by other countries and that we look at this in the round. I would argue that at the core of this policy is our determination that we must live up to our international obligations through both um, the Convention and ECHR and of course um, it is crucial that um, the Rwandans live up to their human rights obligations too. You mentioned the United Nations a moment ago. The UN Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture have noted a refusal by Rwanda to cooperate with them. Do you think that indicates any problem with adequately assessing the risk of breaches of Article 3 uh, for asylum seekers in Rwanda? So Rwanda will process claims in accordance with the UN Refugee Convention, national international human rights laws, um, and will ensure protection from inhuman and degrading treatment or being returned to the place that individuals originally fled. I'm, I'm going I couldn't to ask be clearer some, about I'm going this. to ask you some questions about how, what we can do if Rwanda doesn't do that in a minute. But what I specifically asked you there was, do you think that Rwanda's refusal to cooperate with the UN Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture indicates any problem with adequately assessing the risk of human rights breaches, particularly Article 3 in Rwanda? Well, I would refer you to my earlier answer that the Rwandans, as are we, determined to live up to our international obligations. Well, do I take it from that that you're not concerned that Rwanda has refused to cooperate with the UN Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture? Um, that doesn't concern the British government. What I would say is that as a UK government, we have proper and thorough engagement with our international partners and with those international bodies. Um, and I would, of course, encourage countries around the world to have similar constructive dialogue. I'm going to read you something that the US State Department have said about Rwanda, and it's a quote. The Rwandan government was often intolerant of public reports of human rights abuses and suspicious of local and international human rights observers, <clears throat> and it often impeded independent investigations and rejected criticism as biased and uninformed. Individuals who contributed to international reports on human rights reported living under constant fear that the government could arrest and prosecute them for the contents of their work, end quote. Now that comes, as I said, from the US State Department, our major ally. Does, do their findings about the Rwandan government's attitude towards human rights observers concern you at all? Deeply unconvincing from the minister there. 
Joanna goes on to confront him with the disparity between the advice the Home Office gives to British citizens intending to travel to Rwanda and the answers he's giving in defence of their policy. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Well, after all the doom and gloom about the cost of living price hikes, the UK's slide into fascism and dismantling of our human rights, what about something positive? This week's Commonweal Policy Podcast, which is hosted by Craig DL, was on the subject of the Good Food Nation bill, and there was a guest there from the Scottish Food Coalition. Now, I hadn't heard of this coalition before, So here's just a little clip from that podcast to let you know who's in the Scottish Food Coalition and what their aims are. The Scottish Food Coalition, um, we're an alliance of farmers and growers, academics, workers, unions and charities focus on a number of different food system issues, such as the environment, health, poverty and animal welfare. We know that the challenges facing our food system are connected and we need to work across the whole system to achieve a healthy, fair and sustainable future. So we were founded in 2015 by RSPB Scotland, where I work, and also Nourish Scotland. And we now have close to 50 members representing a number of different areas related to food, such as Commonweal. But we also have um, members focused on issues such as nature and the environment, such as the RSPB, WWF, Open Seas, health charities such as Obesity Action Scotland, Scottish Care, animal welfare charities such as One Kind, farmers and growers such as the Nature Friendly Farming Network and the Land Workers Alliance, food bank providers in um, the Independent Food Aid Network and the Trustful Trust, and also workers unions such as United Unison. So to me, this really represents the breadth and depth of the coalition, but also food as an issue and how connected uh, it is across different aspects of our society. And we also have a network of um, volunteers that help to shape our campaigns and work with us to, to deliver on some of the things that we that we want. Uh, And we've been campaigning for a Good Food Nation bill, which is the name of a piece of food legislation proposed by the Scottish Government. So we've been long-standing campaigners for the bill, um, and we were a key part in the Good Food Nation bill consultation that happened a few years ago, and getting this bill um, on the radar of the Scottish Government and parliamentarians. Uh, And we would like it to have five things in it. So we would like to see the right to food to be enshrined in Scots law, the establishment of an independent food commission. Uh, We would be aiming to have food plans created, sectoral measures and targets to drive action across the food system, and also duties on public bodies. So um, we'll come on to discuss, I guess, some of the specifics of the bill as a key way of picking up food system. But in summary, that's that's what we've been up to the past few years. And if you'd like to find out more about the Scottish Food Coalition, their website is www.foodcoalition.scot. And they've just published a new report on how Scotland can successfully become a good food nation. And you can download that report from their website. If you'd like to hear the whole of that conversation, then you'll find it on the Commonweal Policy Podcast. Those of you who follow Scottish Independence Podcasts regularly will know we've just done an episode of the Indie Jigsaw Show, where we looked at an interim constitution for Scotland and got an update from Mike Russell, who's leading on the work, as to where that that piece of work's going. We did get some feedback after that podcast asking why we had to have a new Scottish constitution at all, why we weren't just using the claim of right. So next Friday's podcast is going to be part two of us looking at the constitution, but with a focus on the claim of right. One of the people we interviewed for that show is Jenny Eels, who some of you may know as uh, Random Scottish History. 
So if you're thinking claim of right, what's that again? Here's Jenny to explain. The the claim of right was really Scots asserting their right to question authority, really. Scots have been very fond of self-determination since time immemorial. You know, they they always elected their own chiefs. It was always a fairly democratic situation Mm -hmm. that that we lived in. Uh, And that that really didn't end until after Culloden. And it was the after effects of Culloden that that gave the chiefs and lairds more power than they'd ever had before. They no longer Mm -hmm. had to answer to their people, really. Um, but the claim of right obviously came before that. That, that was uh, 1689 uh, that the claim of right came in. Um, Patrick Fraser actually says in The Scotsman of March 8, 1875, it was an article that we included in our Treaty of Union articles. Uh, he, he says, and I'll just read because he, he just said it very well, uh, laid it out. He said, the right of appeal to Parliament from the judgments of the Court of Session was asserted by the Scottish Bar in the, the year 1674. And for so doing, the whole members of the Faculty of Advocates were banished from Edinburgh by the authority of the Crown, Charles II being then king. The people of Scotland would not submit to this. And accordingly, in the claim of right presented to King William and Queen Mary in 1689, this constituted one of the articles that it is the right and privilege of the subjects to protest for remed of law to the King and Parliament against sentences pronounced by the Lords of Session. That claim of right was accepted as a condition upon which these sovereigns were to be recognised as King and Queen of Scotland. So that lends itself to the idea that the Scots are sovereign. We, we don't answer to a monarchy. The monarchy answers to us. Authority answers to the people. Um, and it was always with a view to being beneficial to the population of Scotland and the way of life of Scots. And as we see from Culloden in 1745, that really decimated a lot of the ground that was laid by the claim of right, um, because the claim of right was accepted as legislation. It was accepted by the monarchy. It was accepted by the Parliament of Scotland at the time. It, It was law. You know, but after the Union and after, I mean, Culloden itself and the 15 Rebellion were civil wars that came as a protest to the Union. Scots didn't just want to put their own guy in the throne. That that wasn't the sole purpose of that. It wasn't just to sit James on the throne or Charles on the throne. They felt that by putting these people on the throne, these people would then end the union with England and make Scotland its own country again. Mm. That's why Scots were willing to overlook all of the issues with those sovereigns, because those were sovereigns that didn't fully believe in the claim of right. These were sovereigns that felt that they were there by right of God, not by the people of Scotland and not by consent. But the people of Scotland saw these people as a means to an end. So there you go, a little taster of what's coming up next Friday. We'll also have an interview with um, constitutional expert Dr. Elliot Bulmer as well. So it's a really interesting show. Uh, Make sure you tune in for that one. The podcast will be available from Friday the 3rd of June. And we'd love it if you would join us. So if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, maybe do so now so you don't miss any. 
And that's nearly it for this month's episode of the Bits and Pieces podcast. I'm just going to leave you with something that I think is absolutely brilliant. The new Doctor Who, Nakuti Gatwa, and he is a former refugee from Rwanda. You know, that place that the UK government thinks it's OK to send asylum seekers to. He's black, he's gay and he's Scottish. Now, doesn't that just give you the perfect antidote to Pretty Patel and the Home Office? And here's the man himself describing how he blends all those identities together. Well, you're just taking my, I, you're taking my Scottishness away from me. Like, I am Scottish. I'm Scottish. I think when you see another black person, you're kind of like, <gasps> oh my God, there's another one. Like, I must find them and I must be friends with them. My accent has given me the biggest identity crisis of all time. I don't know what I sound like to people. I don't know what you're hearing. I don't know what you're hearing. I don't know what anyone is hearing when they hear me. They couldn't even understand the concept that someone could be, that like, someone could grow up in Scotland and be black. I remember definitely feeling like, oh my God, I might be the only black person in the world. My name is Shuti Gatwa. I am an actor, a Scottish actor. I am best known for playing Eric Effion on Sex Education on Netflix. So very best wishes to our new Doctor Who and well done for flying the flag. <laughs> That's it for this month's Brits and Pieces podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and you'll get new content every Friday and occasionally a little bonus on a Tuesday as well. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. I'm a piece of bits and pieces.